Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined as always by Robert Hunt of Linne Holdings in San Diego. And uh, we have him today. We have our uh, uh, engineer, Dan Hummiston, somewhere in the world doing his job as always. And we're very excited to be with you, to be with you live and uh, start another new chapter of the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. Rob, how are you doing? Oh, great, Larry. It's uh, good to be here and uh, excited for a fun show. Yeah, as am I. So this weekend, actually, by the time you folks listen to it, when you listen to it taped, it's going to be Monday, so the, the, the day after, two days after, uh, I'm going to the Vic Theater here in Chicago to see uh, Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou uh, do the Remain in Light show, uh, 43rd anniversary of the album, and uh, very, very excited to go and see that. We're celebrating my wife's birthday, and uh, should be a fun night, but I figure this is a good time to take a slight detour and focus for a few minutes on one of the uh, greatest bands ever in an album that in my humble opinion, maybe one of the best ever. So uh, let's dive right into the well-known opening chords of uh, Remain in Light, Dan. But I hear those tunes and I uh, those notes, and I can instantly remember the first time I ever heard this album at the University of Michigan, my freshman year. I was in the dorm visiting one of my buddies, and this song came on, and I just stopped in mid-conversation. I said, what is this? And he told me, and I had heard of the Talking Heads. Uh, I you know, heard some of their earlier albums a little bit here and there, but, but this seemed to be like a completely different sound to me. Uh, this is uh, well before I uh, hopped on the Grateful Dead bus. Uh, but I like to think that uh, being exposed to the Talking Heads helped really broaden my horizons in music and ultimately led to me kind of falling in line with the Grateful Dead. What do you think about the Talking Heads? I mean, look, one of my all-time favorite bands, and you know, people ask me frequently, if you get any band back together to play one more show, who would your first choice be? And for me, undoubtedly, it's, it's Talking Heads. I'd rather um, see those guys get back together for one day than, than you know, anyone else out there as I just think they're so instrumental in changing the entire sound of like, you know, sort of pre new wave in, in the New York, like CBGB and like mud club scene back in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and I wish for the life of me, they could figure out ways to, to get along to, to make it happen. But I've, I've seen David Byrne a number of times and, uh, you know, I've never seen, um, other members. I've seen Bernie Worrell a few times as well. who's kind of a quasi member of the band. But uh, everything about them, same, same experience you had, different place. Uh, I remember hearing Talking Head 77 for the first time uh, by my tennis instructor when I was probably like 12 years old, maybe younger, actually probably definitely younger, and, uh, and being completely and totally blown away by it, going, what is this? And he sort of gave that like knowing look of, oh, you're, you're going to thank me for this later. This is Talking Heads. Uh, but, you know, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it was like such a completely different part of my musical brain than the Grateful Dead that, you know, no matter how much dead I listened to, there was always room for the talking heads and their sound. 
and uh, the, the guys uh, who all mostly live out on the West Coast now who were a big part of my uh, dead crew at the end of my Michigan years and then in, in the years after were all huge Talking Heads fans. And it was not unusual for a night of a show out in uh, the San Francisco area to begin in somebody's apartment listening to the Talking Heads and conclude later. And uh, one night we after uh, the 85 Greek shows, we were driving back after marching up and down Telegraph Road uh, a little under the influence. And as we're coming up and over the top of the uh, Oakland Bay Bridge right there, we're just kind of crests a little bit. We're listening to We're on the Road to Nowhere. And it just, it was the the, the, the whole scene, the whole picture of it uh, stands out vividly in my mind as, as much as uh, any of the dead that I saw that weekend. And uh, I love the talking heads. I, I wish that I would have seen them. A few of my friends did. Uh, unfortunately, I was going to law school down in Columbia, Missouri at the time. So I missed out on the uh, Chicago show when they came through and, uh, uh, and everyone got to go out and, and check it out, but I heard all about it. And, and they're, 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 you know, what a, what a group of musicians, right? With David Byrne and Jerry Harrison and Tina and Chris, and uh, I guess Blue would play, do session work with them from time to time. And of course, with Brian Eno as the producer. So, I mean. Right. Yeah, it's Eno. <laughs> That's even cooler. I, yeah. I mean, you just think about what a conglomeration of musical talent and how it all came together and. Uh, you know, just kind of went off in this completely different direction. Uh, I thought that uh, Chris France, I read, had a great quote. He said about the Talking Heads that they were so visionary that we were post-punk before punk even happened. And, you know, I hear that and I laugh and I'm like, he's actually kind of right. You know, this this is almost where, where punk naturally led to, but they they had kind of captured the sound ahead of time. And it, it's, it's just, it, it's... It's Great Stuff comes out in October of 1980. Um, it was the last Talking Heads album produced by Brian Eno. And it's been described variously as new wave, post-punk, dance rock, Afro-funk, world beat, or art rock. Um, any of the others that you uh, you know might want to think of. It obviously has a lot of African influence with uh, African polyrhythms and funk and electronics and uh, what did I was reading about a recorded instrumental track is a series of looping grooves, which is what really catches people when they're listening to it. Just this, this looping sound of it that seems almost effortless. And, uh, but to me, the, the, the real value always of the talking heads, but especially this album. And I never knew this before until I read about it recently that while they were recording it, David Byrne had come down with writer's block. And so rather than being able to come up with like the clever lyrics that he would normally come up with, the whole album is almost kind of like spoken singing. You know, he, he's telling these stories and he's, he's, he is singing a little bit, but the words don't necessarily rhyme and they don't need to. And he just kind of takes you through uh, each one. And, and it, it's just a different sound from what I had grown up with previously from what I was just starting to get into at the time with the who and the Rolling Stones and ultimately waking, make, making my way to the dead. And here's the talking heads in the middle of all of it. Yeah. 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 And, and, Again, it's such a unique style and such a different style to, to anyone of those out there. And I think sort of the, uh, the, the post-punk um, uh, title would, would be accurate. You know, in many ways, they kind of had that, that punk feel to them, but, uh, but in a much more calculated way, which is why it's sort of like the King, King Crimson-y like, style uh, they had to them was, uh, was pretty amazing. And, and also a really eclectic group of musicians. I mean, these guys are all like, you know, RISD guys. Uh, so they're all, you know, artists of their own right before they went into music. So it was a natural progression of, you know, kind of being like funky RISD artists uh, into becoming a completely new genre of music. Absolutely. Uh, 
And I think that's a great way to say it. I think they did kind of invent their own genre of music with their sound that uh, up to that point, you know, had, had really hadn't been uh, focused on nearly as much. But you know that these guys are big time, we always say in the industry, uh, when Fish covers one of their albums for a, a musical costume. And they did just that in uh, 1996 at the um, uh, Deer Creek in uh, Noblesville. And I happened to be in that show on, uh, excuse me, August 28th, 2021. And Fish comes out in the second set and right out of what's the use and ultimately back into it. This is what they did, Dan. There's, there's nothing like being at a, uh, a live show uh, for a band that, you know, the next generation down has mostly adopted. And then here, Fish break into this tune that was popular 10 years before any of the guys in this crowd, you know, my, in my son's crowd were even born. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really almost a little redeeming. It's like this is the music of my young college life, you know, being made relevant all over again by another amazing band. Yeah, the amazing thing is they've actually kept uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless in their repertoire ever since. You know, so it's like oftentimes from a musical costume, they'll uh, they'll keep one or two songs like, you know, from like Lou Reed's Loaded, they kept rock and roll um, and Sweet Jane. You know, you, you get those. But uh, but, you know, when they covered some of the other albums they've done, I mean, certainly you've never heard another Dark Side of the Moon song played after the musical costume they did in Salt Lake that time. And uh, there's a few other times they've you know covered something and that's it. It's a one and done. But with um, with the Talking Heads, not only did they cover Remain in Light, but then they've also picked up, you know, songs like Cities, and I think they've at least covered a, a couple other over the years Talking Heads tunes as well. So it's uh, pretty impressive that, that you're getting that. And look, I, I, there's tons of bands. You know, I'd say Burning Down the House has got to be one of the most covered songs, you know, out there, uh, just because of the, the electricity that goes into it. And I think Life, Life During Wartime, I know String Cheese Incident covered it a handful of times. So, you know, no doubt that they've been a major influence on a ton of other bands. They really have. And uh, there's actually a, um, well, it's funny, after Fish did it as a musical costume and it came out, I think, on Fish Live or Live Fish number 15 when they came out with their original set with all the artwork on the front and everything. But then I happened to find one day in a uh, secondhand store uh, a CD that was just the set of them doing Remain in Light, and it was the traditional Remain in Light album cover that you know, except it had, you know, fish on it instead of uh, talking heads. And so, it would, you know, they, they really tried to capture the whole thing. And uh, I was amazed at how well they played that album. And, you know, I was thinking about it afterwards, and I'm like, I, whatever it is, you know, they, they don't like to play the Grateful Dead, but if I were them, I'd be a hell of a lot more nervous about trying to cover the talking heads than I would be about trying to cover the Grateful Dead. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, again, super technical. So, 
you know, when you think about the stuff that they do, uh, you know, even when you watch, you know, stop making sense as a, um, as a, a video and you watch, you know, kind of the way they segue from different parts of starting off just really, um, uh, individually with, you know, burn kind of out there by himself on stage and introducing another artist, introducing another artist, introducing another artist until you get a full band. It's just absolutely crushing it, but they're, they're so, um, uh, specific as to how they play their music, but they still have the ability to jam out as well, which is, you know, something that, um, you know, similar to the way like an Umphreys is, where Umphreys is like ultra technical, but, you know, still has the ability to, to let it go loose. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think good musicians are good musicians and, uh, and they have the ability to do it. One of the things I saw when I was reading up on them a little bit that really kind of cracked me up, you know, was talking about all these different genres, but uh, there's a story in there that none other than, Grateful Dead family legend and friend of our show, David Gans, uh, was credited with having had a conversation with David Byrne where he instructed him to be freer with his lyrical content, advising Byrne that rational thinking has its limits. I hear that and and it it just kind of makes me laugh a little bit because, you know, I I think of David as being so deeply embedded in the, the whole Grateful Dead scene, and yet here he is giving advice to David Byrne. And I don't see anything that says that Byrne didn't listen to him, you know, and here we are. It, it, it's just, but I love how sometimes, you know, you see that, you just see those little overlaps. Somebody over here goes and talks to somebody over there. And even if you don't specifically notice the sound itself, uh, you know, there's just kind of a nice feeling to know that somehow cosmically or whatever, on some level, they have that connection. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very, very cool. And then, um, what I like, Byrne actually responded to uh, to him on that, and he said that the lyrics are meant to be taken literally because, you know, he says we're, we are largely unconscious, meaning humans. We operate half awake or on autopilot and end up, whatever, with a house, a family job, and we haven't stopped to ask ourselves, how did we get here? <laughs> you know, and, and that's, to me, that's like, that's just great. You know, he's, that's exactly what he's talking about, and uh um, you know, to just, you know, to capture that sound and everything and, and that idea of his, uh, he's a deep thinker, this guy. He's really, I mean, he's not your ordinary rock and roller. No, he's not. He's a, uh, he's very, very cerebral in almost everything he does. And every time I've seen David play, uh, it, it comes through just kind of the, the way he interacts with the audience and like the avant-garde dancing that he's got going on in the background where it's you know, completely understated. He puts on like a really cool performance, but it's more of an art performance than it is a rock and roll performance. In, in many ways, you feel, you know, like he would fit in just as well, like playing with um, uh, the Velvet Underground, you know, sort of that, that post like, you know, um, factory Andy Warhol crew of, of really creating an experience rather than creating a, um, you know, a 1970s uh, arena rock style concert. That wasn't what they were about. No, and and I think that shows. You know, they were not a stadium band. They they mostly played in smaller venues. I, when they played here at Poplar Creek at the time, the whole place with the lawn and everything probably held about fifteen thousand people. But that was always my experience. And in fact, when you go online and you see a lot of what they do, they they like to play in a lot of the uh, you know older theaters in various towns and, and and go in there and I think really take advantage of the mood and the architecture and and as the artists that they are, uh, you know, just kind of weave it right back in. Uh, to what they do. So let's put a bookmark there for a minute because we've got a lot more talking heads to go. This does eventually manage to tie its way around to some live Grateful Dead, so don't give up hope. Uh, We will get there on that. But once again, as always, there's some great marijuana stuff going on to talk about. And um, uh, I I picked up about four or five articles, but one 
that right off the top really, really cracks me up is that, that New Jersey is, is in the process of passing a law now that will say that New Jersey police officers cannot be tested for marijuana. So, you know, you, you can't have mandatory tests of all of your police officers looking to see if any of them smoked. And what I was really impressed about with this article more than anything else was that they have bought into, uh, in passing this law, they bought into the understanding that the THC stays in your system. So they're all they're ever doing is they're testing for, for its presence, but not any negative impact that it's having on you, right? If you have presence, but not impairment, but that's the problem we run into with, with traffic stops, with uh, mandatory tests by employers, uh, right? You're picking up somebody who smoked on Saturday night. Now it's Tuesday morning and you're going to throw them out the door, even though they show up for work just fine. And the guy next to him who was on a bender all weekend and can barely pick his head up, you know, from drinking so much scotch, he gets promoted. Yep. Yep. It doesn't make any sense. Never has to me. Uh, it never makes sense to me that, uh, that, you know, alcohol is so prevalent with so many uh, jobs and the, the hangovers and everything else that goes along with that or the anger management that goes along with it uh, certainly takes a toll on a lot of people. Yeah, it's always the, uh, the cannabis um, users that are vilified. And more ironic to me is how many people have been busted by New Jersey state troopers over the years. You know, I can't think of a, a place that scares me more than when you see those huge, massive, you know, New Jersey stadies that are on every single, you know, you look ubiquitous in the highways. And I can think of a handful of friends that have gotten popped by those guys. And, uh, and they were, they were rough guys, you know, they, they smelled marijuana, like they, they'd searched, they definitely weren't, weren't easy to deal with. So the, the idea that, you know, everything that they used to be punitive about, they're now, uh, kind of above the law themselves, it, it just, you know, re- reinforces kind of the double standard that I've always believed police officers hold themselves to. I don't disagree. But one of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, maybe it causes these guys, maybe wishful thinking, but maybe it causes these guys to stop and think about for a minute, you know, that, hey, if I'm a cop and I smoke weed at home, okay, I get it. Somebody's out in the car smoking weed and that's not the same as you smoking in your living room. But on the other hand, it's a guy who smokes weed. And, you know, and if, if you go and write him up, you, you may be creating problems for him that he'll otherwise never have with a law like this. That You know, the cops are, I mean, it, it basically says, you know, that you know, if, if the cops go out and beat somebody up, you can't come in and test them for marijuana to see any of that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know. I, I agree with you. You know, we have to be on equal footing. And even if all employers are going to go to that standard, police officers can't be ignorant when they're on the road and, and, and doing their job of the benefits in which they also get to participate. Yep. But not surprising. It seems that, uh, that I've grown to expect that, uh, that, that others will be held to different standards to which they hold others to. Well, interesting about that is, is another one of the stories uh, that I located yesterday. Twitter has finally said that it will stop suggesting people who search for marijuana online may need drug treatment. Now, I'm not on Twitter very much, so if at all, so I, I, I can't really say how this is ever necessarily applied to me. Um, but it, it's, it's no secret that when you go onto any kind of social media, um, all of a sudden you'll see a barrage of ads for whatever you might have been looking for, even if it was just one time. And, you know, we're all convinced that they can hear you because, you know, my wife and I will be talking about having to buy some more Band-Aids and the next day 10 ads for Band-Aids pop up on my phone. So I, I get that 
you know, it, that that's part of all the algorithms they write. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I love that you bring that up. And I don't know if you saw the, the Saturday Night Live skit this weekend, you know, about the, uh, about the Chinese balloon going down, but it was a brilliantly done skit. And it's, you know, it's like, Oh really? The whole country's worried about, you know, what spy surveillance there is like, and you're not worried about Alexa. <laughs> you know, it's, there's so many other things, you know, like, well, what's your phone listening to? Uh, how much information is being pulled without us even knowing it just by, you know, the things that we say when we've got a microphone and a, and a camera on us at all times. And yet we're worried about what the, the Chinese are going to see, you know, a couple hundred, you know, tens of thousands of feet in the air that uh, they can't already get from all the components they make and all the, uh, all the software they write for, for things that we use every single day. Yep. No, that, that, that's very true. And, you know, and, and, and on that level, it's kind of scary, right? That, that the computer always knows what you want to see or thinks it knows what you want to see and, and flashes it right at you. Of course, the problem with this is that it also potentially exposes you and your habits to a much wider group of people who you might not otherwise particularly be interested in knowing about these kind of things. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm of the school that I enjoy smoking very much, but I don't need the rest of the world to pander to me about it. Just leave me the fuck alone, right? You know, don't you don't have to send me special ads about it. You don't have to do anything like that. Just don't interfere if I want to get high. That to me, that'll be good enough. Uh, you know, instead of uh, you know trying to suggest things that I may or may not need. And you know, although you would say you know teenagers or younger people may not you know, shouldn't maybe really not be smoking. I don't know that these are the kind of messages we want to be flashing out to them, and certainly not to their parents. If the parents get on the line and say, "My son smokes marijuana," what should I do? Oh, there's a treatment center right down yep. the street from you. Yep. Uh, again, the less that uh, my electronic things know about me, uh, the happier I am. In fact, I won't even get like a Roomba uh, because I don't want my vacuum cleaner, you know, recommending things. I don't want my refrigerator being a smart refrigerator that recommends which products I should buy when I run out. I think all that stuff is nuts. Like, it's like absolutely crazy. It's bad enough that like, you know, I've got to put my phone number in to, uh, to go shopping so that my, own, my, my receipts have coupons that are coordinated to the things I like to buy. I think all that stuff is nuts. Yeah. You know, look, it's like anything else, right? There, there can be some conveniences that come from that. If you like to buy a particular type of wine and they're going to have a sale and they notify you and you can go and get there. Great. Thank you very much. That's nice to know. But I don't want there to be a, a central repository somewhere that has, you know, all of Larry Mishkin's preferences stored in it. And I will say, like I always do, if anybody gets down to listening to Larry Mishkin's preferences and they are leading a life that is more boring than they should ever be living. But right. But nevertheless, I, I just don't like the idea that the information is sitting around out there and, and and being gathered and that we are so cavalier about it. We don't even we're also excited about the conveniences of doing it that we don't really stop to think about the, the, the sensitive nature of the information that we're so freely giving up. Yep, I agree. I agree. So what else is happening in marijuana these days? Oh my goodness! There, you know, there's always good stuff, and and one of the things that I like, Rob, is I keep going online and looking at stories. Is we just kept getting proved right over and over and over again, and you know, all the warriors out there of the world, and all the people with the with the crazy ideas about marijuana. We we talked about one of these just a couple of weeks ago, and now there's another uh, study out there that says that they see uh, that when states legalize, teen smoking goes down. And I know that for most people, that's one of the most oxymoronic things that you could try to put together and, and, and you know, get to a point where you can comprehend anything that's being said with it. But it's true. And we know this. And we knew this. I, I had been hearing this information 10 years ago and mentioning it to people who thought I was crazy. Um, and yet, you know, within the, within the span of two months now, we, we've seen two separate articles 
focused on this trend. And uh, I think the beauty of the article is not so much that it's saying yay for marijuana as much as it's saying to the parents, stop worrying. You know, if this is why you're worried, if this is what you're concerned about, stop. This is not something to worry about. You could accept it or not. If you want to disbelieve it, if you're a you know, person who's always believing in every crazy theory that's out there, or, you know, convinced that the government is always going to lie to you. And sometimes I fall into that camp, but I try not to always. But, you know, one one study, maybe two studies. Sure. By the time, you know, we get to three or four studies, it's not just a study anymore. You know, this is a serious trend that, you know, you have to accept on its face, I think, at this point, if you're honestly evaluating uh, the pros and cons of allowing marijuana into your state. And, you know, I can already hear the people saying, ah, we don't believe this and we don't believe that, but it's okay. Go out and do your own damn research and come up with a conclusion. <laughs> You're starting to sound like a MAGA guy. Do your own research. Damn right. You know, you got you to protect <laughs> the important stuff. Uh, that's rich. I never thought I'd hear those words come out of your mouth. Uh, that's that's funny, funny stuff. But yes, I think when, when people actually go out there and, and check, you know, uh, good peer-reviewed articles, uh, or reputable news sources, they'll find that a lot of the things that we've been talking about are in fact true. And uh, while politicians may not want to uh, to hear them, it, it's hard to deny when they're presented with facts. It's true. And for any of you out there who still have parents looking into your lives and giving you grief about smoking marijuana, feel free to share all of these facts with them. Um, if I can find them online, anybody can. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's going to get to the point where we're all literally going to be able to look at people from now on and just say, fuck you. I don't care. I don't want to hear what you're saying. I know the truth. I know that you have a bias and I'm stoned. So see you later. Yep. That's uh, I, I usually use the F you as my response to anything anyway. So it's uh, it, it makes it, it makes it easier <laughs> to shut down the conversation before it starts. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's see. I know that um, uh, we're seeing, the uh, people going dry for uh, dry January, turning to, uh, to cannabis as a substitute. Uh, that was just uh, put out by our friends at Marijuana Moment. So yep. you want to jump in and talk about that one for a quick second? Yeah. It, again, um, I've got a really good buddy, lives here in town, uh, very much into marijuana and very much into the whole marijuana business scene and looking for different ideas and different ways he can break in. And it always cracks me up because it's once a week or once a month, but you know, I'll be reaching out to him. Nope, got to go to my meetings. And at first, I didn't know what he meant. He goes to AA. He was an alcoholic, and he was a really bad alcoholic in a period in his life when I wasn't really seeing him a lot, so I didn't realize that. And he's been going to AA for a number of years. And I said, "Well, how do the folks at AA reconcile the fact that you know you're a big stoner and you like you like to smoke?" Isn't the whole idea in AA that you give up all substances and you you, you give up anything that can intoxicate you in any way? And his response was, yeah, but, you know, I got to do something and marijuana is a lot safer. And when I smoke marijuana, I don't feel like drinking. And I've been hearing this story also probably for the last seven or eight or nine years from people saying, oh, my God, my husband was a terrible drunk. He came home every night. Some nights he would hit me. Some nights he would hit the kids. Some nights we didn't even know if he'd get home alive. And then we persuaded him to try smoking marijuana. Now he comes home. He's stoned. He's happy. He orders a pizza for everybody. and We all watch TV together. And. You know, it, it, it's just, it, it, it makes such a huge difference and, and it's so important, I think, for people to be able to distinguish the two and understand that while both of them give you, uh, you know, an intoxication, you know, for your social purposes or coping mechanisms or for your pain or health or whatever, the reasons, there's one that's just bad, it may taste good and it may have a rich history in our country and, you know, 
you can never watch a movie without two guys sitting down and holding their drinks and clinking their rocks in their glass. And, you know, and then, you know, everybody who I'm going to go home and get a drink. But if you drink, you feel bad later. Who knows? You might die in the middle of the night. If you drink too much, you're going to blow out your liver. Um, and you can be violent. You're going to be all of these things. And, you know, that's not to say everybody who drinks is, but the people who drink, some percentage of them drink to excess. And this is what happens. And stoners who smoke to excess go home and fall asleep. And, you know, if you're looking for one substance, you know, I can't give up both. It seems to me it's kind of a no-brainer, right, that, that cannabis is the way to go. Yep. You know, it's uh, look, I said a hundred times on this show, um, I, I 100%, I think everybody out there should accept at this point that cannabis is safer. You know, Mason has said it enough times, but uh, but for some reason, the um, the vast majority of the population still seems to prefer to use alcohol, at least in the older generation. But, you know, I think we are seeing a real trend move away from that. And uh, I'm curious to see whether in 20 or 30 years, whether the, the levels have completely shifted to being, you know, cannabis being the, the preferred method of intoxication. Well, that leads right into our last story uh, uh, that I pulled for the day. <laughs> and this is the one where you and I knew this, and anybody who's ever smoked has known this, uh, but now the scientists and the medical researchers are all starting to realize that marijuana is not associated with hangover effects, raising questions about driving and employment policies. And this, again, gets back into what we were talking about before, uh, you know, where if you know we're talking about whether police can be tested or anybody can be tested, well, guess what this tells us? This says exactly what we were just saying a minute ago, Right. And if I smoke marijuana on Sunday night and I get tested on Tuesday and they see that I'm THC positive, which I will be, and I say I'm perfectly fine and capable of working and they say, no, this says you have it in your system, therefore you're impaired. Now there's medical studies saying, no, the scientists are confirming what we've all known because we've smoked for years and we've, you know, we've all been in college and we've gone to football parties and had way too many beers and woke up feeling like crap the next day and gone to parties where everybody was smoking pot all night and woke up the next day. And yeah, maybe you feel a little groggy, you move a little bit slowly, but you don't have that hangover effect. You don't have that feeling after too much drinking where I can't even open my eyes. I can't even listen to what people are saying to me. There's no way I can be productive today. And so, you know, now science can quantify what the rest of us all know that if you have to choose between one or another, why would you choose the one that creates a serious negative hangover effect and is otherwise just bad for you instead of the one that lets you get up the next day and be a human and do whatever you have to do. Yep. Yep. Uh, it has an, an easy thing to quantify as almost every person out there has woken up with a hangover at least one time in their life, or more importantly, just woken up kind of dullheaded, not from being drunk the night before, but just from having, you know, one or two more drinks than they probably should have the night before just to feel like a little bit off when you start your day off rather than the way you feel after uh, smoking a joint you know, before bed. So completely different feeling. And it's nice to know that, uh, that what, you know, user of cannabis been saying for years is in fact the, uh, the case now from a scientific research perspective, which is you will, you will feel great when you wake up in the morning. There is no, uh, there is no long-term effect as far as, um, as far as hangover effects. It's got the doctor's good seal of approval. So, you know, <laughs> if, if you got to work the next day, uh, take it from the pros. Don't drink, smoke. Um, you know, I have an associate who was just getting ready to take the bar exam here recently. And I, you know, said, what are you going to do the night before? He goes, man, I'm just going to get drunk. I said, no, no, no. 
Don't do that. Here's a joint. Go home and get stoned and then go to bed. You'll wake up the next day ready to go. You don't want to wake up taking a test after you've been drinking the night before. So we'll find out in a month or two if my advice paid off. That is true. So uh, a couple other Canvas uh, pieces of news. I don't know if you saw it, but it was announced um, on Wednesday last week that uh, a merger in California is happening between the parent company and Gold Flora which uh, is a pretty surprising merger. And I don't know if you know much about either company, but uh, the parent company is um, a combination of Left Coast Ventures and Kaliva and you know, uh, um, Jay-Z's brand that you know, came in with uh, the support of Rock Nation. But it was you know, sort of the, the big SPAC in 2021 that was put together by a, a group called uh, Subversive Capital, which is Michael Auerbach and Leland Hirsch, uh, and came out with a fair amount of fanfare and just, you know, re- ridiculous amounts of money raised when it happened. Well, as of last Wednesday, they've now given up as a publicly traded company, they've given up 51% of their business to uh, a private company in Gold Flora, which is not even a a major name in in California canvas or decent name that's uh, run by a woman named Lori Holcomb, uh, who has, you know, a couple um, retail facilities as well as a, uh, as well as a large cultivation facility out in, in desert hot springs. But the fact that you've got, you know, what was supposed to be the, the the big company, definitely the best capitalized business in all of California, now being tucked into a private after this huge, you know, public listing in 2021, really just kind of, again, illustrates, you know, what's happening in the industry from A, an M&A perspective, but B, from a, um, a consolidation to the downside perspective of just how tough it is out there for a lot of businesses that two years ago were such high flyers. So I don't know if you saw that or if you had any thoughts uh, on that merger, Larry. Uh, I did not. And I'm glad you're bringing that up. But, you know, to me, it, look, it's it's what you just said. On the one hand, uh, I say to people, are these problems? Yes, they're problems. But that just means that cannabis is a big industry now and it's having the same type of issues that others do. So on the one hand, I see that as, you know, as, as almost a, as a good thing. On the other hand, though, look, I, I think it speaks to the fact, and, and you and I have been talking about this a lot lately, just how fickle this market really is. And and ultimately, I think what's going to be proven is, you know, we're a long way from the uh, the foregone days of 2013, 14, 15, when, you know, people were operating under the assumption that if I get a license, I can print money. This is just going to be a cha-ching, cha-ching operation for me the rest of the way. And I think that a lot of businesses are recognizing that uh, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes, you know, your best laid plans get put to the side. And, you know, especially with this group, I think it was a very interesting group of, of, of people that got together. And, you know, I like to see them succeed as much as anybody. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the crazy thing about this one is it wasn't, you know, a bunch of people that didn't understand the industry. It was a, most of the guys that were uh, involved in this had already been working in the cannabis industry for some time. I mean, obviously, like, you know, Rock Nation and Jay-Z is not one of those, but, you know, Rock Nation also includes Rihanna and Meek Mill and Yo Gotti and DJ Khaled. And a whole bunch of others that are you know big names in, in the music industry. So it was meant to be, you know, let's take all of our star power and all of our marketing uh, equivalency and pump it into a company that's got more cash on hand than any other business, along with you know multiple different brands that are already existing in California, including Kaliva, which you know at the time was was pretty big. Uh, you know, Left Coast Ventures and Brett Cummings, who, who was originally there, Brett left very soon after the um, the merger of the parent company, but you know Brett was running. Um, uh, the, the, the venture capital arm of, um, I believe it was um, Canopy Growth, but for their U.S. operations. 
So, you know, this was a, this was a handful of pretty big names and people that, you know, definitely understood the industry uh, for quite some time. And to watch that thing go down in flames as quickly as it did, uh, even in the early days, but to the point now that they're, you know, allowing um, uh, uh, Laura, excuse me, Lori Holcomb and uh, her team to become essentially the, uh, the dominant players in this merger where, you know, they're ending up with 51% and Lori's becoming the CEO of the company. That's amazing to me that that's happened in two years time, just, you know, that quickly that you've just seen this whole thing get wiped out, uh, even with north of a hundred million dollars, you know, on their balance sheet. Uh, I just don't understand how you can, you know, blow through it that quickly. And it's just a, a cautionary tale to a lot of others that thought, okay, well, here's, here's a, a prime example of a company that can't lose based on how much cash they have on hand and the management team that they have behind them. And unfortunately, here we are. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a done deal yet as far as, you know, first of all, the, the, the actual merger is not done. But, um, you know, will this thing make it? it? I think time will tell. But usually you do a merger uh, in order to, you know, create economies of scale or create efficiencies. In this one, the only thing I can see that's even happening is that they're, uh, they're, they're merging to cut down their SG&A costs uh, and, and eliminating redundancies in the, uh, in the senior management. But I can't see any other, like, accretive um, part of this transaction that would show that two companies that are, you know, really struggling – that the sum of those parts is going to come out, you know, significantly stronger than two struggling companies to begin with. Yeah, well, you know, like anything else, I guess we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. But uh, it, it is a very, very sobering message, I think. And, and Illinois has announced another round of applications for dispensaries, uh, which are just getting rolling. And um, I, I'm, my, my phone is ringing again, which on the one hand is nice, but on the other hand um, is yet another group of individuals who are, you know, ready to sell their soul and pay a lot of money to try and get their hands on a license just because they think the minute they get the license in their hands, the world is going to change. People are going to shower money on them. Uh, they're going to be, you know, the, the cool and hip people in town. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to listen to me. You can go talk to anybody else who's been out there. You know, and, and in theory, I, I agree with what you guys say. You know, it's wonderful. It's very cool. It could be a lot of fun, but it just hasn't played out that way. And if you're going in thinking that, you know, I'm going to come out of this, you know, with a hundred million dollars richer than when I went in. Say good luck. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, and I'll say we're seeing other signs, you know, of that as well. As of a couple of days ago, also, uh, you know, one of the true industry luminaries in, in the legal field uh, just left his own firm with Christian Cedarberg, leaving uh, um, Vicente Cedarberg. The firm is now just called Vicente. Um, and, uh, you know, you've seen that happen with a lot of the, the top attorneys in the space, either, you know, moving to other industries, um, the way like, uh, my buddy Mark Hauser has, where he's staying in canvas, but as an advisor rather than an attorney, but, you know, leaving pretty plum jobs at, uh, at big firms or firms that were, you know, stalwarts in the canvas industry. So I don't know whether or not it's, you know, due to the fact there isn't enough, uh, you know, work out there anymore or whether or not it's just, um, no longer fun when, when people aren't enjoying the business since it's, it's all sort of doom and gloom work that you're doing rather than, you know, doing the work that, is um, getting everyone excited about the prospects to come. I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, I tell people that when uh, uh, the medical bill passed here in 2013, you know, at that point I was already going on 25, 26 years of uh, practicing as an attorney. And, you know, that that's a lot of years. And I, you know, doing litigation too really just kind of wears you down after a while. And you know, I thought maybe the market crash and, and, you know, a lot of this business drawing up here, maybe that was a sign for me to go out and look for other things to be doing. Um, and then this marijuana stuff came along 
and besides the fact that I'm wildly interested in it, um, it was new. It was fun. It's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm practicing law. I'm doing the exact thing I was doing before, but instead of talking about widgets, we're talking about buds and plants and and all of this other stuff, which to me was just amazing. But now, you know, I think we have kind of reached the stage where, um, it, you know, the, that 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 same basic thrill, uh, the edge of it's kind of been you know honed down a little bit, and um, you know, we've we've seen that the realities of the business world exist in the cannabis world as well. And sometimes even stronger, and with with potentially you know more dire effects than you would otherwise have, uh, not because you're 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 still dealing with something that's illegal on the federal level, and um, you know the, the originally the licenses you know here were being offered by people in the, this last round that isn't even up and running yet, and they're offering their licenses for five, ten, twelve million dollars, and you know I would roll my eyes, and people would say, oh come on, it's a dispensary license, it's got to be worth a lot. You know, now these prices are down right around a million dollars, maybe. Uh, dispensaries are maybe one, 1.5. Some of the dispens- uh, cultivation centers, dispensary licenses are being sold for less than that when you can even find a buyer. That, that's it. I mean, you just nailed it. Like, the, the price is what people are willing to pay. And I think as we get closer and closer to the uh, the sunsetting of a lot of those um, uh, equity licenses, you're not even going to see a, a buyer on the other side of the trade. And even some of the licenses that you know exist um, that are out there with you know businesses that are start doing that well in terms of top line revenue, there might not be a buyer for them. Again, you know Illinois is a state that's capped at ten, even for the big guys. So once you got your ten, you know you, you can't buy. It's all like Massachusetts with with this cap of three. But a lot of the bigger MSOs are, are hitting their limit. So you know they're the, the potentially the only buyer that's left out there, and they're going you know look we we don't want it. It's not an asset we can even. We can even take simply because we're already capped. So, you know, we'll see what happens to pricing of dispensary licenses in the Illinois market going forward. But it's very likely that we haven't seen it go, you know, to, to bottom yet. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I think there's, you know, still a lot more uh, going on out there. Now, in this new round of licensing, irrespective of what you have up to this point, you can apply for one license. But as a principal officer, you can only appear on one license. I think it's, it's 60 or 65 new licenses that are coming out. Um and, and I and I assume they're doing that as their effort to, uh, you know, move away a little bit from the MSO model and, and give other people an opportunity, no doubt, specifically social equity, which I'm just going to say right now, and I don't really care who's listening. Illinois social equity program is so horrendously bad and so embarrassingly bad. And, you know, now they think they've solved it again by making it a little more complicated, right? So now it's a combination of where you live and they give you like five different types of neighborhoods you could be living in, including one neighborhood where the majority of the, the people who are otherwise eligible to go to high school don't have high school diplomas. Um, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. So that that's column A. And then in column B, it can be still, if you were the uh, victim of a war, or the war on crimes, meaning you were arrested for anything less than a felony uh, for marijuana, that so still doesn't require a conviction or any jail time. And there's lots of white rich people who have been arrested for marijuana. Um, the second thing is now, if you've been the victim of a uh, a crime with a gun, if you've been shot, if you've been shot with a gun in the commission of a crime, and I'm not even sure if it's in the commission of a crime, the language isn't very clear. Uh, and I, I just see this as pandering to this notion that poor people uh, who are black, who they want to get in this, live in these very specific neighborhoods, are the only ones who get arrested for marijuana and are the only ones who ever get shot. And there's plenty of other people who are willing to take advantage of these you know, realities and say, 
you know, I own some property down in this neighborhood and I've been arrested for marijuana. And, you know, uh, maybe I've even been shot once. Who knows? Maybe I've shot myself. I, I just don't know. It's it's so frustrating. And, and when they can't figure out a way to enforce these programs and ensure that among the new groups of licenses, they're getting, you know, faces of people in color, of people of color who were there. They keep getting, you know, rich white guys who have, you know, figured out ways to scam the system and come up with their own social equity shtick or, or tie into this. And then we run into the same problem. We can't release these licenses yet. And they'll come up with 50 reasons, but that's a primary reason why they can't release them because then they're going to turn around and get sued because they haven't satisfied enough minority interests. And it, 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 I'm not saying that I have the answer and I don't, but I, I, I know what doesn't work and this just doesn't work. And, and, you know, I mean, I know other states talk about social equity, but Illinois, you know, has really been beating its chest about it for a long, long time. And I think they're just, you know, still barking up the wrong tree. They, they don't even understand what they're doing wrong yet. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And unfortunately, I don't think too many other states are much better. You know, and, and what do you do in that situation? I have no idea. I, I, I completely agree with the concept of social equity, right? You cannot exclude an entire group of people upon whose, you know, backs and arrests and jail sentences, uh, you know, the modern marijuana black market was built. Uh, leading into what we have today, um, and there has to be a way for folks like that, you know, to be to be able to have some involvement and interest in this. But if we're really a society that's never going to let us say, people who are black, people who are brown, you know, very very specific, specific, and I understand that racism or, or race based decision making can be a positive, it can be a negative, and I guess it just depends where you come out in the outcome, whether you think it's a positive or a negative. And so, again, I, I don't sit here and purport to have the answers, but I think they're doing a big mistake when they come out and they just try to run the same tired and, and, and worn out uh, qualifications a second time and think that they're going to avoid the same round of lawsuits they just went through. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think that, you know, going a step further than that, it's also that uh, uh, even if they have, you know, these guys coming in, um, very likely they still have to borrow money from somewhere to, uh, to get these things off the ground. And usually that's going to be the same, you know, rich white guys anyway. So what, what's the difference? You know, the, the, you, you have to create a program. If you're going to create an equity program, you have to create an equity program that empowers people instead of forces them to be subservient against the same people that you're, um, that you're trying to exclude for equity purposes to begin with. Absolutely. That's right. That, and that, that's absolutely right. And well, maybe one day minds that are smarter than you and I can, uh, figure it out but um there's no one like that out there <laughs> well that's true especially now when it comes to this great music so we're going to dive right back into our talking heads and while the talking heads are one of those bands that i'm just as happy listening to their studio albums um uh, as anything else they are an amazing live act and although i've never seen them live i've seen the stop making sense film i've seen uh more than my share of, of clips on youtube and everywhere else you can get them I've talked to people who have seen them live. Uh, and, and so for the, our next clip here, we are going to take a tune from the Remain in Lion album. Uh, and instead, we're going to play it, though, uh, play a clip of the Heads performing it live in Los Angeles at the Pantages Theater in December of 1983. Dan? Yourself. My God, what have I done? In the days gone by, let the water 
wonderful song. I love that song. And, and I, 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 sometimes I just think that it's my favorite talking head song of all. It's, it's just such a great tune and they have so much fun with it. And I know other bands try to cover it sometimes, but you can't cover that tune, you know, really because Burn and his, his presentation is as just as important as any of the instruments in there. Yeah. I, I think once in a lifetime is certainly, if not their best, you know, certainly top five, uh, hard to, hard to pick too many songs that you like better than that one. Yeah. I, although I will tell you, um, I love the album so much. Let's just throw another clip in here really fast since we found Dan. Uh, and we're going back to the album on this one for Houses in Motion, uh, which is another great tune. this song besides it's a great song it's the fifth track on the album so when you get this album and you're listening to it and you're like wow this first tune is amazing wow this second tune is even better wow this third tune is great if you get to a fourth tune in, in a row and it's still really good by the time you get to the fifth tune you know you're probably expecting the little experimental piece that one of them wrote and had to throw in there because they made a promise to their girlfriend or their daughter or somebody and you know it's nice and maybe somewhere down the line it builds up some classic nostalgia but you can pick any tune on this album and start playing there and it's just as good. Yeah, that's true. And honestly, I think that's true of a lot of Talking Heads albums, you know, uh, maybe, maybe not like little creatures, you know, towards the end, but, uh, but I think for at least the first uh, several albums, pretty much everything top to bottom uh, was pretty darn good. Let's see, like what, what are the, I'm trying to think of what other um, albums I'm thinking of right now, but the one that's right after Remain in Light uh, is pretty darn amazing as well for, for the same, for the same reason. I'm, I'm sorry. One before we fear of music. I, I, I think top to bottom is one of the best albums there is out there. I like that album too. It's uh, in, in fact, it's, I guess it's hard to find something that they put out that, you know, any of us are going to say uh, uh, that we don't like for, for better or for worse um, for better. Certainly. This is a good way to segue into our last song of the night. Um, uh, we're going to play this as we, uh, as we close out and go out the door. Um, but because we won't have a chance to talk it up on the backside, um, I want to talk it up a little bit on this side, on the front end. And although it's always fun sometimes to play the clips and just surprise everybody, we're going to come right out and say, we're closing with Take Me to the River. And everybody's going to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's not that a talking head song. That's an Al Green song. And it's not even on Remain in Light, so it's got a double <laughs> whammy going, right? Totally. You know, it, it came out on more songs about buildings and food for the talking heads, but yes, it was written by Al Green and, Mabon Teeny Hodges back in 1974. The version released was sung by Silt Johnson, peaked at number 48 on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, and uh, musician Thomas Ryan, this is the quote that I wanted to get to that I think is, is great. 
he said of the Talking Heads version of this song, Take Me to the River, it broadsided the status quo by combining the best ingredients of conventional pop music and classical soul music, stirring them together, and then presenting the mix in the guise of punk rock. And, you know, when I hear that, it just makes me laugh. I think that that's a, that's a great way to say it. And, you know, he kind of really hits the nail on the head there. Yeah, he really does. And again, Take Me to the River is like it, 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 almost like a, um, a biblical song. You know, Al Green, I think, uh, took, took something that um, was already, you know, kind of already in the, the hymnals uh, and just, you know, made it his own. And then the Talking Heads took what Al Green had done and, and took it one step further. And since then, obviously, lots of other people have covered the song as well including uh, our good friends in the Grateful Dead, who I think did it a handful of times in 1995, of which I got to see three of the four times they played it. Well, you're better than I. I just got to see the last one. It was in St. Louis. So uh, I made my way down there as part of my, what was, you know, I, I, it was my, the end of my summer tour. I didn't realize it was the end of everybody's touring period. Uh, they did two in St. Louis and then went up to Chicago for the, for the final two, and, and, and they played it there as well. And we're going to dive into a clip from that St. Louis show that I was at with my good buddy Mark and my cool cousin Brent, who uh, I always go to shows with when I'm in St. Louis. But what I love about this song is how many different times uh, it's been covered, and, and all the people who have covered "Take Me to the River," Foghat. Okay, that's you know kind of an eclectic band. Maybe you know they were certainly back in my high school days, but I always enjoyed their stuff. Levon Helm, Brian Ferry, Annie Lennox. Hootie and the Blowfish actually backing Green at the Billboard Music Awards in 1995. The Dave Matthews Band. Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band. Mavis Staples and Sam Moore, they did it at the Kennedy Center Honors when Green was receiving his award in 2014. And what list of covers would be complete without Courtney Love? So, you know, when I uh, when I look at these this list of uh, people in all different areas of, you know, what we would call, generically speaking, rock and roll, uh, it's only uh, you know fitting that eventually uh, uh, the Grateful Dead themselves would get around to it, and they do, and they play it you know in their own very unique, inimitable style. Um, Bob Weir may not be the best vocalist for this song, but he sings it like Bob Weir, so I give him credit for that. Uh, you know, Jerry certainly has a good time playing it, and uh, uh, I think that it's going to be a, a great song for us to go out on. Uh, when we come back next week, I will have uh, experienced. Uh, remain in light with uh, Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou, and hopefully have uh, lots of fun stories uh, to share with all of our listeners. So, Rob, any parting words for the crew today? No, nothing uh, nothing too much for me. Outside, It's really fun to talk about a, a different band and the influence that band has had on a lot of other bands that we like. What I will say is if you are a big fan of both Fish and, um, and the Talking Heads and Pink Floyd as well, uh, if you're out there, get a chance to go see uh, Pink Talking Fish, who I think are coming your way at Park West in April, um, Larry. They're definitely a band worth seeing. They're certainly known to uh, to play after parties and after shows uh, when other bands are in town. But uh, I've had many a fun night watching those guys play. So I would recommend going to check them out if uh, if you dig the music of both the, uh, the the Talking Heads and the Fish. What a great combination! You know, obviously the only band missing there for me is the, the Grateful Dead. But I'm very happy happy with Pink Floyd, Fish, and the Talking Heads, and uh, I will make a point of trying to see that. So. Um, have a great week, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Likewise, and uh, let's listen to a little more um, Talking Heads a la The Grateful Dead. Thank you, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly, folks. See you next week.
for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.